live on episode 20 of the Capital Spotlight Podcast. Your host, as always, Craig McGrother, with the principal and co-founder of the firm, Rob Beardsley, and with the special distinguished guest, very very important person, because without this guy, this would all be here. So Todd Beardsley, uh, Rob's dad, who was the co-star, along with Ina, of the Lone Star Summit event just a couple weeks ago. How are you today? Doing very well. Good. Very well. Enjoying being here in New York. Yeah. How long have you been here for? About 10 days now or more? A couple weeks. Okay. And then maybe another week left as well? Yeah. Six days maybe, right? Yeah. And you've been enjoying yourself, walking around, yes. eating well? Oh, it's been, it's been great. I, I enjoy the wonderful weather. Restaurants are fantastic. And uh, just, yeah, enjoying it a little bit more each time I come here. You yeah. Know, coming from California, I'm not a huge New York fan. But I'm warming up to it, right. and uh, so I've been coming here for a few years, and it's getting better each time. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because this has been my favorite experience in New York. We've been eating exceptionally well. Last night we uh, had a great dinner with Ilya uh, at Carbone, so that was awesome. And then you also said, I think not on this conversation yet, but we'll get into it, that your favorite meal was at Fort Charles. Yes, no, yeah, that was fantastic. Everything was extremely tasty oh i'm ready to go again me too yeah we, we gotta too. go i'm actually kind of getting hungry that we're talking about <laughs> this we have a great dinner tonight as well in store as always you can expect nothing less so we've been both enjoying the great food and then obviously uh the final last legs of weather as you know that's going to be gone for the next six months so lucky us on that front we have a packed show today so we're excited about having you on the show as you were as it was mentioned such a star of the event but i guess tell us a bit about where you're from I'm from San Jose. I uh, grew up there and uh, live there today still. And um, graduated from college in 1990 from San Jose State University with a master's in marketing and uh, BS in finance. And uh, after college, it was, a, it was a recession in 1990. And, you know, graduated with an MBA. Here I am in Silicon Valley. Couldn't get a job, couldn't get a job, interviewing, interviewing. Finally backdoored into real estate, selling single-family homes. Right. So let's get into your career professionally. So you said you backed into uh, into single-family homes. Funny enough, we were kind of joking about this before the show, and that was that I had the weird idea to sell homes, and that was kind of always my plan. And then, of course, it deviated with you know networking and meeting people and becoming such good friends with Rob. You, on the other hand, had the opposite experience, which is probably the more common experience, yes. which is that, oh, yeah, you kind of fall butt backwards. Uh, party, you know, to, to not uh, curse on the show, uh, but you kind of fell butt backwards into it. Do you feel as if your degree from San Jose State prepared you at all or helped you with your business, or do you think it was not necessary in hindsight? There really wasn't um, a lot of value to having a degree selling single-family homes. You, most people don't have any sort of applicable um, real estate background when they go into selling single-family homes. It's pretty straightforward, and there's lots of training available. Being able to analyze numbers, I think, maybe was helpful a little bit in accounting, um, but no, not much. Right. So you sold homes, but also, and you did that for 30 years because you had Menlo Atherton uh, Realty, correct? Was that the yes. name of the brokerage? Mm -hmm. So you had that. You ran that with Ina, of course, your wife. Um, but then you also did some other kind of interesting things in the real estate sector too, correct? I think you did maybe some development or some flips. Uh, can you walk us through that as well? Sure. Going back to, I think, early 90s, I was uh, you know, doing some remodels and buying some parcels and building 
um, a couple of times, built a home, and um, always had my, you know, my desires focused on trying to do something other than just sell homes. And I, I was looking at apartments uh, back in the early 90s and trying to figure out how I could, well, actually, not just the 90s, into the 2000s, I was still trying to figure out how I could do it. And I just couldn't really figure out how to put it all together, the piece of the puzzle of apartments. And so I never, <clears throat> I never did any apartments. Uh, just did some remodels, single-family home remodels and flips kind of thing, and that was it. Right, right. Very cool. And then you kind of saw, just from uh, taking a step back a bit, the business totally changed in residential from no computers really probably necessary to the full MLS, you know, where you have to fax, print everything out. How much, how, how interesting was it for you to see the, the, the shift of, you know, the market changing in that regard, the shift of the industry changing, and then also, you know, the implementation, implementation of computers? Because Rob's very computer savvy. Dasha, as well, is very computer savvy. It seems as if that runs in the family. So you were probably on the forefront of that as opposed to kind of the, the traditional way, which is the dinosaur business, where most realtors are in real estate, maybe not the, the brightest bulbs, uh, and probably were not uh, wanting to adapt very well. Is that fair to say? Yes, and I was very fortunate enough to be early into the computers enough where uh, it, it caught with me. It, a few years later, and I wouldn't have, probably. Um, but I got into computers. I was typing in college, so I knew how to type. I was very interested in the computers, and so uh, all of that was the the improvements to the real estate industry were fantastic. I loved it. It was more efficient. I'm all about efficiency, so I, I loved all of that. And speaking about computers, the kids I had them a computer when they were each of them had a computer when they were two. And they were doing uh, SpongeBob typing by the time they were maybe four. Yes. Right. And, and so I, I started them off early, early, early. I remember one time when Dasha was, I think, in like first grade or second grade, and they started typing, doing something, and she could already just blaze through the keyboard. And What an advantage is for our generation to be basically so adapted. I guess there's not much of an advantage of everyone's doing it or more people right. are, but so convenient to kind of be integrated with computers at a very early age. Because my parents are not computer savvy at all. Like my dad can barely cut and paste, okay, for instance. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny to have the other end of the spectrum and I think I have that slight level of computer literacy which you always remind me of, uh, which is funny. So I think it definitely does stem from the parents one way or another. Yeah. And I wish I was a little yes. bit more computer sound and savvy, but it's one thing that I am working to overcome funny enough. Yeah. So switching into raising Dasha and Rob, as they're both of course working for the company, um, did they give you and Ina a hard time growing up, or were they pretty easy to raise? Well, Rob was a bit of a pain in the butt some of the time, right? He was very difficult with Dasha. It was uh, just any siblings, same thing as any siblings would do. Um, but once they left the house, he was very protective. And so that was the, the main thing for me is I understand when they're at home, they're going to fight and scuffle around. but. As long as outside in the real world he was protecting, I, I, you know, I was okay with it. But right. neither of them really strayed too far. There, what, there was no real rules that we had. It was pretty easy and loose because the kids were very well behaved and, and I was all, always around. We had adults home all the time. Right. Uh, we were working from home and the kids just grow up very, very mature due to that. 
Right, right. So, but that's not the case for everyone because there's still sometimes there's parents around and the kids are, you know, a little bit rambunctious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have somebody in mind when you say that. Well, listen, just saying generally speaking, yes. I, you know, grew up where I grew up in Menlo Park, not too far from where you are for, you know, going from, you know, living in Atherton mostly. But I know some kids whose parents were around, but they, you know, couldn't give a flying, you know, what regarding that. So that's not the case for everyone. Maybe they're just more grounded. Uh, so interesting that they didn't give you that hard of a time, which is nice. But, you know, it's funny. Dasha has let me know every now and then that you may have uh, been a certain type of way and then obviously grew out of that, of course. And now you're a lovely boss and uh, a male role model in her life, of course, which is great. So that's cool. With that said, what were some of the house rules that you maybe put in place or I guess didn't put in place? Or, you know, were you, were you guys really strict? Were you really on it? So I wouldn't really say it was strict. Um, I was always letting the kids make their own decisions. And so it was, I was there to watch those decisions and give them guidance during those decisions. So it really wasn't so much about rules as it was just always steady guidance, just always there, always there. Um, So no, no real rules. It was probably a lack thereof. You know, our kids, my kids, became very, very disciplined. Um, I think just from the parents being there and watch, watching, being involved, monitoring whatever is going on. And so, um, no, not much in the way of rules. Oh, he's got some. Well, from my perspective, from my perspective, there weren't many rules. And, but what there was was a high level of respect demanded. And so maybe there weren't explicit rules, but you knew very well when a rule was broken. And there was punishment doled out for that. Yes. And so with that dynamic created a sense of respect uh, for authority, which is also not easy to do when you're also simultaneously trying to be friends with your kids, right? So you toe the line of, okay, I'm friendly, but then the lines get blurred. Just like how we talked about on this show, how you and I have a very awesome, unique relationship of friends, but then also coworkers, and then at times, you know, boss and employee, right? So that is... A difficult dynamic but if you're shooting for the stars and you want to have the best relationship possible I just think that that is what you should go for you know people say don't mix business with pleasure or don't mix family and money well we're doing it all or we're doing all of it right here a lot of a, a ton of cross-pollination in that regard for sure yes. and you you said this before uh, when we we're speaking on this that you wanted to be friends with your kids. So was that something that you had in your life as well? What was kind of your philosophy on wanting to, I guess, choose that path? Because some people are, some parents are uber strict. We all heard of the phrase helicopter parents or, or tiger moms or, or whatever it is, tiger dads. Um, so what was that thought process? Is that how you were raised? Or just maybe that was something that was slightly different from your upbringing that you wanted to implement in your household when you were making your family? I think primarily it came from, I grew up as just a wild child and it was a very tumultuous environment I was always in trouble and I gave my parents a lot of grief, a lot of grief. And I knew that I wasn't going to have that in my world, in my home. I didn't want it, I wasn't going to have it. And I maybe foolishly thought, well, if they're my best friend, then maybe we won't have any of this grief. And uh, so that was my goal. I was set out to make the kids make me be their best friend. So I was always their friend. I was always their buddy, always hanging out. And I think that, like to your point about respect, 
I think if, if you're there every day as a friend, you're going to respect that friend. Yeah, you'll be joking back and forth, but there's that respect. So that's kind of the genesis, is me not wanting craziness in my household. And as you can attest to, my number one priority is peace. I want peace, harmony, and that was what I was all about. Right. So were you and Ina, for the most part, always on the same page with how you wanted to parent uh, Rob and Dasha? Well, as you know, she's from Russia, and she's an only child. Is that where the respect comes from, and also the computer literacy, might, might I think? Or no. is that your Swedish background to, to pair those things? No, no. It's, um, she, she just let me kind of, you know, I was the American, and I, I should know how to run an American household and an American kids. Uh, and so she deferred to me and let me kind of do it my way. And it was different than her way, but she gave me all the leeway in the world. And so I, um, I kind of more or less dictated how um, the flow of things would go in terms of punishment, and rules, and you know, other things. As they got older, you know, we'd have kids over and they'd get crazy and I would be like, no, it's okay, we'll let them, you know, they have pool parties and stuff, so it, um, but I was there. I was always there. Whatever they were doing, I was there. Right. That's awesome. So, and, and Rob's always told me how involved you were in his life. Similarly, my dad was involved with all of our lives. We would play golf every single weekend. Saturday, Friday, we maybe would join him after school, play the last three or four holes with them, and then go to the 19th hole while they're having drinks, just chit-chatting with the adults, which I think paired really nicely for my development, just with speaking with, you know, people, whether it be in the our business now, of course, uh, but he also coached us as well. Did you coach Rob and, and Pop Warner? Because I know football was really big in your house. NJB, if you did basketball, I don't know if you played basketball or not, but were you participating in coaching? Because my dad coached all of us in Little League. And like you, very busy professional, but he made time for us, which is so special. And that's not a privilege everyone gets. You yes. know, I, you know, you know me, I think I'm one of the more respectable people that you know. And, you know, likewise, you are too. And that, I think, comes from for sure having a very strong father figure in your life. So back to the question, did you coach uh, Dasha and Rob in sports? I did some coaching for sure. My, uh, I started out the process, once I had a son, I wanted to be a baseball coach and I wanted to ride that out as far as I could go and started with T-ball and that lasted maybe one year and he quit. He didn't want baseball and I was just heartbroken. He was, so he's a quitter. He was five or six years old and, and he was like, nah, this isn't for me. It's too boring because he would stand in the outfield and just nothing going on. Right. So he quit um, that and then, uh, you know, started playing basketball and other stuff. And uh, so I was coaching basketball with them and, and uh, middle school was, was kind of the pinnacle. I think we went, what was it, three seasons with one loss? Something like that. I forget what it was. It was two or three seasons with just one loss. So we did fairly well in middle school, though. But, right. right. Um, and then high school, I just wasn't, you know, um, good enough of a basketball coach to do anything there. But and then football, I forget what year it was, but I was not coaching, but I was just always there, always around, going to practices, supporting, going to every game, that kind of thing. And that's typically the, the transition is because most people, you know, it's almost bizarre because, like, you have until, I would say, after uh, 
middle school, grade school, whatever it may be. Once you get into high school, it's like, okay, let the professionals and, and the best yes. and the best kind of do it who are Absolutely. getting paid to be here and are doing it. It's not really the parents' job anymore at that point. Maybe NJP is slightly different if you're with a travel team. I know, for instance, kind of random, but Oakland Soldiers, maybe there would be you know a basketball coach that was a parent or something like that. But by and large, it seems as if it's the professionals are there doing that, whether it be kind of people that played in college or professionals that are yes. giving back now or just in the community or perhaps a teacher and whatnot. That's how it's set up, at least for me at St. Francis. And I'm sure likewise to Mellow Atherton, it was that way as well. So it's really cool to hear that you were so involved, just like my dad. And it's funny, the imprint and the fingerprint that does leave. And it's funny, I don't know if you were like this, but I can speak to my dad. He was a bit of a yeller. So we, we got yelled at. So, you know, he, he could have run a little hot. Was he a yeller? No, not at all. No, I, I no big ups, no big downs. I'm just a calm guy all in all. And so right. I never got riled up on anything. I'd get mad, but I wouldn't really say anything. I didn't right. want the parents, I didn't want the coaches to think I'm one of those parents that's, you know, oh, you know, play my kid. Or, right, and, right. Uh, I didn't want to do that. So funny. So my dad was yelled a little bit, but not like a big deal, not like abusive. But there was another coach that was the other co-coach who... Interestingly enough, was probably the Little League coach for 20 years, which is an interesting story in itself, uh, with no kid on the team, which is more rare than not, but that's another topic for another day. But he was a chronic and known yeller, so much so from a Little League team, uh, people didn't even want to play on the team, which is kind of funny. Wow. And yeah, exactly. So he, he was known throughout as that person. So, But that's maybe why if someone yells or barks at me, I actually take it very well. So I take criticism easily, so I'm sure like you always been coached from sports how applicable that is and moves forward into just relationships generally and you know probably as an employee or working or you know I guess on your end now having employees you know kind of running a company which is all kind of intertwined together which I think is cool but with that said there was a really big and pivotal moment I think we've talked about this in your life and also for the family's you know I guess long-term outlook I guess if you could say is that was the move from San Jose to Atherton so um, that was a huge thing for you in, in many aspects. You know, what was that experience like? How stressful was it? And you know, what was the kind of the wise logic and foresight on that decision? Well, we were, you know, in San Jose for many years, and it got time for the kids to go to school, and obviously that's a concern. So, the primary driver was school because I knew I can't send them into the schools where we were. And so it, um, it so happened that I was doing all right at the time and, and I thought I could you know, make that jump to some good school district. So I started looking around and I then also kind of combined that with the idea of making it an investment or more of an investment. So what I ended up landing on was moving to Atherton. And um, you know, the crummiest house on the street, basically. Right. You know? Which is, by the way, real estate 101, the smartest yeah. thing to do. And I knew that it would be safe. I, I could plow all my money into that, and I knew I'd be okay in the end. And so, you know, I wanted the kids to see, I wanted a great education. I wanted them to see what living among rich people was like. And we weren't by any stretch. We were the poor people on the street, and that's how they grew up. And, and after we moved, there were some tough, tough times living there, and, and you know, just you know, the house always needed some work and it consumed a lot of our money. And it was, um, anyway, so the kids got to see struggle. They would, they would see the struggle. They knew that life just wasn't all peaches and cream and easy. Um, 
So it was good though. It was very, very good. They got to see, you know, this is what you can achieve. You know, these people with 10, 20 million dollar houses, some of them with million dollar cars, and us with our not million dollar cars. Um, was it a minivan maybe? Oh, Any yes, minivan? Okay. yes indeed. Okay. Um, so it was, it was a great experience, I think, for the kids to grow up not being real rich like that. I think that's a, it, it's, a, it's a fundamental aspect of both of their makeups is that they grew up, you know, you can't say poor because you're in Atherton, but, you know, compared to the rest of the people on the street, we were. Well, it's all relative and due to your circumstance, right? So I felt as if being in Menlo Park that we were just a middle class family. But there's nothing. <laughs> there's no. There's no such thing as really as a middle class family in Menlo Park if you own real estate where you live. So that's just the funniest thought process here. But that's all you know. But to your point, you know, rich is multiple ways. There's you know, rich in relationships, rich in family. You know, rich from a wealth perspective. So maybe the wealthiest people could be the most broken people inside. And I'm yes. sure if you ask those people, they might say trade all the money in the world to feel happy. Actually, truly. So you mentioned that you put a lot of work into the house. Are we talking like you know? flooring, kitchen, everything to uh, how that worked and landscaping because Atherton, for those who don't know, bigger lots, bigger lots, more maintenance, right? So is it basically just an ongoing process of basically this, 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 that? Did you kind of itemize what you wanted to do to start? Did you do multiple remodels? Walk us through maybe that process. It was just a continuous process. You know, we didn't have the money to, you know, do the whole property in one shot. So it was just continual, a little bit here, a little bit there. And, uh, you know, definitely bathrooms, kitchen, flooring, all kinds of things, everything. It was uh, it just, it was a terrible condition home and we had to do everything to it. Yeah. So it was, one thing I wanted to go back to, what's kind of interesting is when the kids were little, I started telling them this, is that, you know, they'd see everything around them and you don't know the difference, right? You grow up in that and you just, okay, this is... It's your reality. It's your reality. Yeah. And I wanted them to understand that they grew up in a bubble, which is America, inside a bubble, which is California, inside a bubble, which is Silicon Valley, inside a bubble, which is Atherton. And that is something I think was very, very important, and I would always say that to them, so that they wouldn't lose track of what reality really was, because this wasn't reality. I, I mean, as you know, it, it's, um, so yeah, that was one thing I wanted to go back to, but what was the question? Yeah, I was just saying, uh, I was going back to just the, the experience and living in Atherton in reference to kind of the work and the projects done to it specifically, but yeah. just, you know, what that felt like and what it was like. And I guess your perspective on the matter, you know, did you feel as if, you know, you were compared to your friends, I guess, maybe not the richest person there, or did you feel just like a normal kid on your end? No, I mean, you could feel the difference if you're going to a friend's house, you go, oh, wow, this, this is nice. This right. is different. And... I didn't have a problem with it. It didn't make me feel uncomfortable or anything. I think it's good. It's a very, it's a very good thesis to get us early exposure to wealth. And in the end, like the whole plan all along, all of a sudden you're going to school with kids who come from very successful families. People are conducting themselves at a higher level, and there's no reason for you not to just rise to that level as well. So, I think that worked out really, really well, while also keeping us grounded which is a really great best of both worlds because if you grow up rich, what's your struggle? Your struggle is apathy. If you grow up poor, what's your struggle? Lack of opportunity, right? Lack of access to education, capital, et cetera, relationships. So if you can mix the two together, that's a superpower. And so I think that was, and 
and it's a bit on accident because if you had more money or if the timeline was shifted, then that would have changed, right? Because you can't just necessarily plan to thread this needle perfectly. So we were fortunate, and I think I'm fortunate that, you know, we, we started off and kind of grew over time so that my, my foundational mentality was, was set and then able to grow from there. Because I think if you stay poor or legitimately poor for long enough, you are likely going to develop a victim mentality and harbor resentment against people who are successful and wealthy. So that's a risk of staying poor too long. So you want to be poor for a bit, but not too long to get the negative of that. So I was thinking about this back to your bubble comment, then I'm going to follow up question to that. So the bubble comment is interesting because when I was going, because I went to Hillview, or Oaknell, then Hillview, excuse me. You probably went to Ensignal mm-hmm. and then Hillview. So that's an Uber bubble. That's basically the most private school. That's a public school that you could probably find in America. And then I went to St. Francis, and it was like, oh, there's actually, from a socioeconomic perspective, uh, a more of a melting pot of people. There's people yes. that are on scholarships. There are people whose parents, you know, founded Snapchat or put the VC equity for Snapchat or, you know, you name it, just like a sense of millionaires and probably arguably some billionaires that attended oh, yeah. that school that I was classmates with. And then there's, you know, people all the way in the middle, which is probably what my family was, or maybe slightly higher than that, probably for sure, knowing how successful my dad is. And then the bigger bubble, the bigger jump was going to University of Arizona, where it's like, oh, yeah, you're, you know, dealing with people that maybe are from Tucson, whose parents never went to college, or, you know, their parents, maybe they have one parent, maybe their parent passed away. So it's just so crazy. You used to get exposed to so much more the more you kind of leave home. And you go into New York, definitely probably change that. You go into Carnegie Mellon, probably give you a different perspective as well. So that's all kind of interesting how that plays in. Um, but There's a good point yeah. going back to, you know, Atherton. So he was going into the homes of all these people, some of them wealthy, some of them not. But, you know, there was plenty of those people that he was going into their home. And I would always preach to him. I'd say, you know, you have a brand and you need to protect that brand. And when you're presenting yourself to these people, you need to behave in a certain way because someday you might come to these people and... You know, because I always thought he'd be a venture capitalist of some sort. and um, So you smelt the entrepreneur in it. Well, yeah, the I mean, entrepreneur it was, nature. It's it. all around us. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. kids at school, they're talking about starting companies. In middle school, they're talking about stuff. So, but I was, I was always preaching brand because, you know, you, you just don't know who you're going to talk to later and, and actually try to do business with or need something from not need but you know yeah extract in one yeah. way or another or create a mutually beneficial relationship and yes. it's funny you should say that because my dad was always big about that my dad grew up you know had food but was not wealthy you know with where his situation was and for the biggest thing for him was to provide us a great opportunity provide us you know with more than he had but also the biggest thing is like hey protect your name and your legacy because that's everything and all you have at the end of the day is your last name and you just don't know and you know you don't want to stain the family's name because it's not that it's not just my name but it's my siblings names if you're acting out of line that is all you know a reflection of us and that was so big for him my dad was so funny he made us wear collared shirts every day to Oak Nolan Hillview wow. because he wanted us to look a certain type of way and I didn't realize it was like you're torturing us but it was how he saw it yeah. and he probably thinks it's silly I find it to be slightly neurotic on his end that's what I thought at the time but I see it now fully yes. and it's just you know it's funny how these things kind of unfold and, and work out how they do question for you Rob is you know your mom and dad both work. Do you think it's really helpful to see your, both your parents work from a work ethic perspective? Because I know seeing my dad come home 
every single day, suit and tie. And then my mom was a grinder as well. She didn't work, you know, in the corporations, but raising four boys is no uh, small task that are playing sports, that are going to school in Los Altos, and then also Mama Park, driving to and fro from every place, you know, coordinating and sorting out all of, you know, the various activities and, and the clubs, this, that. So it was a full-time job on her end. Sometimes I argue it's like my dad's job ended at a certain point of the day. My mom's never ended, right? So do you think it was important and kind of shaped some of your work ethic to see both your parents work and then your mom and dad both kind of taking care of a lot of the house responsibilities? Yeah, for sure. We grew up seeing my both my parents work really hard. My dad work really hard, take a lot of risk as well. And I, I'm not sure if we talked about this, but I, I think you mentioned how even keel you are. You know, you don't like strife, you like peace. And, but at the same time, you're very capable of handling a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. And I think that's where mine comes from as well, because I do believe I have a very strong ability to handle a lot of stress and pressure, uh, which is exemplified throughout my upbringing as well as into my adult career. So seeing that growing up is super helpful. And another thing on top of uh, similar is the fact that both of them were home. So my dad didn't come home at the end of the day in a suit and tie. He was just home all day. And so was I. And so I'm hearing him on the phone all day in the office do real estate deals talking about escrows, talking about contingencies, talking about inspections, titles, debt, everything. Negotiation, how to handle the seller, all all this stuff. And so I, I definitely soaked up more real estate than I had even understood. But on a more basic level, one thing I soaked up in a which I'm incredibly grateful for, and I feel like this is my favorite piece of advice to give people, and it so happens to be a pet peeve now, which is I really don't like when parents talk to their kids like babies. Oh. I hate it. I see it on the street. And, okay, Sonny, now let's go here. Why? What's the point? What, why is, who is that benefiting, right? You spoke to me like a man before <laughs> from I... From day one. From day one, yeah. right? And I cannot wait to have a son yeah. and just talk to a baby like, all right, let's go. We're going to go do some underwriting. Yeah. So I think my dad had some tenderness, but my dad's a total alpha. If you meet him at some point, you'll understand that. You'll understand right away where my personality comes from. I think once you meet my dad, and if you give him a couple glasses of wine, it'll unfold a bit with my humor, probably my mannerisms, my cadences and such. So that's really cool that you, that you think that, and then you went through that. Um, and that's how you want to do it and how he did it for you, which is cool. And, you, you know, generations are getting softer, so I wonder why, right? So that said, what did you see in Rob's childhood that correlated to entrepreneurial success? Was he the kid that was buying candy bars and flipping them and selling them elsewhere? Was he just always thinking about, you know, various or elaborate business ideas at, at a young age where it was just, you know, not how a normal kid thinks. What did you see that was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's a little bit different. Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Well, yeah, we, we had a lot of tomatoes and the kids would sell them, uh, you know, so that was one of the businesses that the kids would work on is uh, pull a wagon around and sell tomatoes in the neighborhood and stuff when they were little. We had a ton of tomatoes. When you have an acre, what do you do? You grow tomatoes. Right. Um, so entrepreneurial things, I can't really say there was a ton of things because he wasn't really creating businesses. He, um, he was just more kind of how he is now, right? He's very on point. He was always on point. Everything had to be a certain way. Um, 
you know, this is the kid that would come home from school when they were little. I don't know what grade it was, what years they were, but he'd come home on mon Monday. They'd give you all the homework for the whole week. So you'd have one week of homework and he'd bang it all out on Monday. And he just had to. He couldn't do anything until he got his homework done. So it's not really entrepreneurial, but it's, it's a discipline. commitment yeah. and discipline. Um, you know, and, and I think that um, there's one story I think is, is powerful. Well, there's a lot of them, but there was a football game. It was a regular game. It wasn't playoffs, but he was really sick. He had a flu, and he's the quarterback. And they only had one quarterback. And, and so basically, if he didn't play, they're going to lose the game. And, you know, as parents, we were like, oh, you know, maybe don't play, you know. But I, w I was hoping that he would just say, no, no, I'm going in. But, you know, Ina and I both had to say, like, oh, you know, maybe you don't want to play. Giving him an out so, yeah. so he doesn't feel bad about taking the out. He was 12 years old, I think. Mm -hmm. And he, like, not having it, not any part of it. He's like, nope, I'm going to play. He felt terrible. I don't even remember. Maybe he threw up that day there at the field. One time he did throw up at the field. I don't remember which one, but... And he played, he played very well, they won, and that kind of stood out as, as just, he had a commitment to his team that I think just, he shouldered that burden. Um, and I think being a quarterback is a unique position. Uh, you know, as we know, it's the most difficult position in sports. And, and I think that, that there's a variety of reasons it's so difficult, but I think it, it puts a lot on that person's shoulder because they are the only ones to touch the ball every play and so much rides on their shoulder. And I, I think it was a great, invaluable lesson, a lot of lessons that he got from that and, and helped formulate and create who he is today. Um, he, can, he can take blame and keep going. You know, if he plays bad, it really impacts the team and you just keep going. Put it behind you, it's just another day and tomorrow you live to fight another day. And so circling back to your question, entrepreneurial things, not a lot. Um, he wasn't out, like I said, not creating businesses, but he was just very determined, committed, responsible, persistent. He wouldn't give up on things. He would just keep plugging through whatever it was. Right, did you think at some point he was, because you guys had your own business with real estate, if you're real estate, believe it or not, you are an entrepreneur and you're in the prospecting business. If you are in real estate, uh, a lot of people always said fall but backwards in the business because they can't get a job or can't hold a job. But if you're in the real estate business, you have to prospect, just first off. But you guys were entrepreneurs. You guys had your own various and uh, marketing kind of programs to generate leads and traffic, You know, utilizing yeah. online businesses. I remember that. With that said, did you kind of think he would get into, you know, start his own business? Did you think he was going to work for someone else? Or did you always kind of feel like he was going to get into something like this? No, I, I thought he would go to work at a VC firm or a consulting firm. He wanted to consult for a while. That was a goal. Um, and, you know, he went to Carnegie Mellon, studied computer science. So it kind of, you know, you can certainly be an entrepreneur after a degree like that. Um, but I kind of felt like the venture capital world was the best way to go because starting a company is tough and so many miss and you can spend so many years. If you've got a great idea, great. Nobody knows if it's a good idea until you know. And those windows open and close very quickly, right? Like yes. you could have the best idea and then Google thinks of it or they acquire this or that and you know these, these ideas are, can be flashes in the pan. But the great thing about real estate is it's a forever business if you can get it going and you pound the pavement, which you did at a very early age, which is really special. So what lessons do you think you learned 
uh, from your dad, and then what lessons do you want to make sure that he learned from you? Well, my dad would always tell us about persistence, so that's a recurring theme, and we mm-hmm. saw we saw my dad's persistence pay off, and I even saw his persistence to a fault, and I saw that he would work so hard and use persistence almost as a crutch because my dad has had a, a hard life but a blessed life because at the end of the day, everything has worked out for you, and... And I think it, it has because of your persistence. But then you lean on it and you, you say, well, I know my persistence has gotten me over the hump before, so I'm just going to keep pounding against this wall until something gives. And I think I grew up seeing that and going, you know what? I don't know if that makes sense. I recognize hard work is irreplaceable, but instead of pounding against the wall, I'm going to find a window to crawl through. And so I... You work, you're the work harder, not smarter. Or work, work smarter, smarter, not harder. Yes, I was sensitive yes. to that and recognized that there had to be a better way yeah so that was something i learned as far as what to do as well as what not to do um and so yeah that's i would say that is is the biggest one and going back to what you said about reputation you know that's a invaluable lesson i mean I, i don't know how you knew to to think that it was so valuable but that was huge that was always on our mind that we wanted to make sure it was almost I remember me and Spencer, funny enough, had almost a competition over who could make the better impression on mm-hmm. parents. He's good. He's good, right? You gotta, you know, say your please and thank yous, shake your hand, mm-hmm. look, look in the eye, eye. You, know? you know, all these things that people take for granted. Uh, but it goes beyond that, though. It goes into how you behave, not just how you present in front of the parents. Like Spencer, he was kind of like uh, Wally Cleep. No, not who was it? And leave it to be an old show. Anyways. <laughs> There was this kid, Eddie Haskell, and he was all wonderfully nice with the parents, so polite, so well-behaved. As soon as the parents are gone, he's just a troublemaker. And, right, right. You know, that isn't what I was trying to preach. I was trying to preach, be this way in front of them, the parents, and then be that way when they're gone as well. Well, he's always very well-mannered, I will say, like, always respectful. You're not the guy that's breaking stuff or doing degeneracy throughout the city and such. We barely go out. We barely kind of partake in that amenity of life, which we afford, could we can't afford to do. We could do if we wanted to, but it's funny, we just really don't elect to because it's not really our path and goal, which is interesting. So with that said, I know there was one thing that you absolutely hated, <laughs> and that was piano. However, I have seen you at very social, very social gatherings where you do sit down on the piano and you start playing and all of a sudden a crowd appears. So... Can you kind of walk us through your piano experience and maybe your thought process as to why you wanted him to play piano? So I guess let us know to start why you wanted him to play piano. Well, I just I knew that music was good for kids. Any music, any kind of music, whatever it was, trombone, drums, anything. Hopefully, hopefully not the drums, but um, so music is good. And the other thing I always would preach is that you know. Whatever you play, you're not going to be playing it probably the rest of your life. And so you won't have any opportunities to play. Not many opportunities for most people. Like, let's say you play the clarinet. Well, where are you ever going to play that? You're not going to. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. A guitar. Well, yeah, you can maybe bring it sometimes. 
Similarly, sports. Sports is a window that opens and closes. Ain't Close, no one playing yes. tackle football. No. You can play golf, which I play, mm-hmm. and I'm very happy. My parents got me into that, but I'm not playing baseball anymore. I'm not. Yep. Playing, and my fond memories are playing, you know, little league. I got to do the all stars because yep. I was a good enough player. Similarly, I'm sure for yourself, you know, playing football gives you these rosy memories. But to your point, exposing people at that age is cool. But back to the music. Sorry. Back to the music. Yeah. And the other thing that I was always preaching is that girls will love you for playing the piano. And, you know, that resonated with a young man. Not at seven years old, though. No, I don't remember when I started preaching that, but it was at some point that it was... But you also said that wealthy people have pianos in their homes. Yes, 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 yes. And there was innumerable times that I would walk into somebody's home, there's a piano, oh, cool piano, sit down, play, oh my gosh, this is great, yada, yada. So that is... I mean, was it worth all the crying and a- anguish and getting my hands banged against the keyboard by a strict Russian teacher? Yeah. yeah, probably. But yeah, basically, I started playing piano at seven, and we had very strict Russian classical teacher. So I was classically trained from a theory and playing perspective, and it was miserable. It was just it was something that was forced upon me. And I think I resented the fact that it was forced upon me. I lacked agency in the decision to play piano. And it wasn't until I had claimed some agency in the matter, not until like 14, 15 probably, where we switched teachers. We got a cooler teacher, a guy who played blues and jazz and pop. And all of a sudden I got to pick what music I wanted to play. And that was a transformative experience as it relates to piano. And giving me back my agency all of a sudden before you know it I like it and also it helps to like something when you've developed a proficiency in it right oh yeah so from there it turned into uh, playing piano teaching piano making a lot of money honestly teaching piano on the weekends because I mean piano. Uh, last I checked that's entrepreneurial yes I forgot I forgot yep Well, and before that, I was a math tutor. Math tutor yes. to piano teacher to quarterback yes. coach. But anyway, it doesn't... Oh, right, I forgot. See, I, I wasn't prepared I, I, for the show. See, I have a comment right now on this. I think your brain developed a lot quicker because you're very intelligent. Ina's intelligent. Uh, but playing piano, yes. speaking English, and then learning Russian... Russian first. You're, you're, okay, there you go. Fun fact, Russian first. Yes. Doing those things at that age leave such a mental fingerprint and you're probably using so many different parts of your brain that really activate, um, you know, I guess different chambers, if you will, different maybe neurons. I don't know, I'm not a brain guy, but you know what I mean? Doing that at that age had to have enabled you to learn other skills and other kind of, yeah, I guess other skills and learning other educational stuff and absorbing things. That's such a great clip and probably gave you such an advantage over just the average individual because most people aren't exposed to multiple languages. People are dyslexic like me who can barely read at young ages, let alone, you know, playing the instrument in addition to, you know, speaking two languages. So that's probably, in my opinion, one of the biggest reasons as to why you are able to absorb and comprehend and uh, pick up things so quickly. So back onto your fun fact. Russian was the first language, and so I had to learn it because I wanted to speak it to the kids. So I actually was able to speak Russian at the age of like two and a half year old kid. And after that, it just, it, they got past me and I couldn't 
speak only Russian anymore. So we had to open it up to English and that was the end of it. Once you speak English a little bit, the whole house is speaking English. But um, so yeah, there's a fun fact. The other thing I wanted to go back to was playing piano, going into people's homes and playing pianos. I remember also saying this, that it was brand building. The parents love it because they all struggle to get their kids to play. And if you come in and play, they would think wonderful things about you. So I can remember that as well. Yeah, well, it's a sense. What I think every parent wants to do, to my understanding, not that I'm a parent, to my knowledge, uh, but what every parent wants you to do is, or to have, is to live and give your kids probably a better life and more experiences and leave them with more information and knowledge. They're going to end up doing with their life what they choose to, but at least on your front end, probably give them every advantage possible and give them structure, which you did very well, clearly. So good for you for doing that, which is awesome. So with that said, what was something that you feel like you were forced to do by your parents, other than piano, um, that you did not like to do? Was there any like chores or errands around the house you had to do? Was there like taking out the trash, doing the dishes? Because you're a very disciplined person, so I could see you being the person or the individual who had to do X, Y, and Z because your place is meticulously clean. You have zero clutter, not only in your personal life, but your physical space that you live in. So was that something that was passed down to you? Did you, were your parents just meticulous? Were they basically cleaning everything? Because you are the most polished person from the exterior, whether how you run your business, how you want things to look from an aesthetic perspective, but then you get into your, your place at 20B, your apartment, and it is spotless and meticulous. So I have to imagine that trickled down from your parents to you, and you probably had to have some you know, rigid or uh, very, very, very strict chores that you and Dasha had to do. So my primary chore was taking out the trash. So I didn't enjoy it, but it's, it's a chore. You had to do it, so no big deal. Nothing really interesting to say there. What was interesting was how messy our house was growing up. Like It was a perpetual construction zone, right? So there was always construction happening. There was always construction folks coming in and out and barging into your private space. and. We had a dog, we had a cat, we had hair everywhere. And if you could imagine me today living in an environment like that, it's the same exact thing. Arguably arguably one of the more OCD people. You're the most non-OCD, but OCD person. I was driven crazy by it, and I made sure that my room itself was my oasis. I didn't let the dog or the cat in that room. I made it sure it was spotless. That was my domain. And so I think because we grew up in a hectic hectic household because there's a lot of people there's a lot of construction a lot of kids a lot of kids people coming in and out it made me want to be such a clean person and i always remember thinking about okay well when i have my own space it's going to look a certain way it's going to be a certain way it's shoes off it's spotless and you know not everybody likes that but it's what i it's what i want it's it's what i learned uh from my upbringing See, I always figured he'd be the person that never had a dog in his house because he hates dogs or just the idea of them. I don't know, which is probably, it's the only unpersonable thing about you, which is funny. So are you a dog person? Oh, I love dogs. I love dogs. I can't, you see me, if I see a dog walking, I like, my head will turn and I will get giddy and smile, which is so funny. But that's just not who you are as a person. So interestingly enough. I think that's why he'll never have a dog because hair everywhere we had a yellow lab and just hair everywhere and the cat would shed too and and it was just so hard to keep up we had a little Roomba but still they they'd overrun the Roomba and it was right it was 
hard to keep up with all that. Right, right, right. Many moving parts, many moving uh, construction jobs, or, as you said. So a perpetual state of things coming in and out, which is cool. But with that said, your multifamily journey. So how did you get into it? I think you alluded to before. You kind of maybe wanted to in the early thousands, and you were just trying to figure out and hack that process. But um, I guess just tell us your journey of it and kind of you know how you maybe where you are today. But take us back to the start. So throughout, you know, going way back, like I said, into the 90s, I was looking at apartments like, you know, a sixplex or an eightplex or something along those lines and was trying to do the deal. Sometimes I would maybe even make an offer, not knowing how I would ever get it closed. Uh, I did that a couple of times and never got anywhere. I couldn't get a loan, didn't have enough money to pay cash, barely had enough money to really even invest in it so I would try to you know talk to my dad or somebody else and it was just I could never piece it together um, and at some point I just gave up because it was just you know as a 1099 person I would 1099 from my own company I never had a lot of taxable income to report so getting loans was very very difficult but I didn't know that that wasn't a barrier that wasn't my flaw my flaw was just not quite figuring it out and I don't remember around, you know, so as Rob got older, he started reading books because he was always a reader, always a big, big reader, digesting the material, reading a book a week, always reading, reading. And at some point he started um, listening to Joe Fairless. And so that's where kind of where we got started. And I'm on the stationary bike every day and he would say, listen to this, listen to this, watch this. And he was feeding me, feeding me, feeding me trying to get me to sell our home because we had a few million in equity in the house by that time. And that was his plan is to, you know, try to help me help myself. Um, so we were, you know, both studying Joe's stuff and, and listening and talking about multifamily. Um, and it was something I, I was already interested in, but just never could really figure out how to do it. And I don't know at what point it was that he you know, felt like he had it figured out. He figured, no, we can do it. We can make it work. Um, and he did, you know, he eventually, you know, well, we were together. So I guess going back a little bit there, I skipped over a, a very important part of it was we both really enjoyed listening to Joe's stuff, Joe Fairless. And we eventually um, took his mentorship course. We paid 10,000 bucks and we were lucky uh, because it went up to 40, then 50, and I don't know, now it's got to be, I don't know, 100 grand if he's even doing it, probably not doing it. But So we took his course, and part of Joe's course was he was available to you all the time until you close escrow on your first deal. And he was there as a support person, guidance and everything else. So I really felt like, you know, with Joe, with Joe by my side, that we could do it, that we could, you know, maybe make something happen. And... Um, so we went through the course, we studied, we picked our markets, we started, um, you know, doing things, and um, we went to Joe's conference. Uh, I don't remember what year it was. 2018. It was the best ever conference. And, um, you know, and I was there trying to meet people and connect and you know, figure out how to do something in multifamily. And somehow Kent and I were in the same group, and we talked a little bit, and we were chit-chatting, and then, you know, Rob came wandering by and said, oh, and here's my son, by the way. And, you know, 
Uh, I don't remember how far he was into underwriting at that point, but I'm sure you. No, were I was underwriting a lot and at that point. You, Kent was telling you about deals he was looking at in Texas, and he said, "Oh, we're, we're looking at deals as well." Rob's underwriting the deals. He can show you what he's got going on over there. And so Kent was interested. Mm-hmm. And we heard, uh, we were talking with Kent, I think, about this recently. and Because I think you asked him the question, actually, at the event. You said, what made you want to partner with Rob when he was so young and unproven, all that stuff. And Kent explained that, yeah, at that, at that conference, he went specifically to that conference in mind to find a partner. Because he ha- had some experience, had some network. Yes. But he didn't have the time because he had a full-time job. And he also wasn't in love with crunching the numbers. And that's exactly what I was doing. And so it was a very good fit at that time where you said, oh, well, my son's got his own model. It's really good. And he's crunching numbers all the time. And Kent was saying the other day, yeah, I took a look at the model. It was very good. And that's kind of how it went. kicked off that relationship. Yeah. Well, I forgot that aspect of it. Yeah. And it is interesting that that's how it worked out because like, it's like, oh, no, we're not. We're going to do this together. It's, oh, no, here's my son. You're going to do business together. So I guess to, to kind of retell that story and add, add a detail, not that it's specifically to you, but um, on your end, you know, how long were you, I guess, talking with Kent after that experience of meeting at BEC in 2018? Well, after that show, we were talking daily, pretty much. And we were talking to brokers together. We were underwriting deals together. We similarly were looking at putting in offers that we didn't really know how to perform on. But nevertheless, we were building those relationships and we were getting that deal flow. And, you know, the really funny thing is, looking back, is we were totally neglecting the big elephant in the room, which was equity. How are we going to raise the money for these deals, right? We were just so focused on the deal flow and the numbers, we didn't pay any attention to, to the, the ac- most important part, probably. To the most important yeah. part, which is investors and building partnerships. Relationships take time. We, you know, we all know all this stuff now, but that's that was the iterate. You know, that was the pro- progression. We went from BEC to talking every day, and then before you know, it was only two, three months later that we had our first deal together under contract. And that brings me to the really interesting. Thank you. The really interesting point that I want to get into, which is something that if you are younger watching this, you may think about, and if you're a parent watching this, you think about, and that's the dynamic of the fact that. I'm sitting with a college graduate, I'm a college graduate, and a college dropout. So you, as a parent, work so hard to prepare your children, to make sure that they do their SAT studying, to make sure they go to everything, to go to their class, to get their homework done. Although it sounds as if you so disciplined, you get all this homework done Monday night very quickly. Unlike me, I was someone that was a C student perpetually, but here we are now. Uh, But nevertheless... He calls you, he goes a year and a half or year and three quarters of college, and I believe you went to London for an abroad program, utilizing the amenities that college has to offer, which I'm sure you had no fun out there, um, especially being able to probably legally consume alcohol in uh, other countries if you did or didn't do that. But with that said, you get the phone call saying, hey, I'm going to drop out. So was this a surprise to you? Were you supportive of it? Were you, oof, knee-jerk reaction, no, and then were you happy? Kind of tell us about your mindset of that, because that's not maybe the, the phone call the average parent in right. Atherton at least wants to hear, or Menlo Park, or the, from Silicon Valley, where literally everyone goes to college. Yes. So tell us about that from your side of it. Well, it didn't catch me off guard, because I'm always talking to them, you know, and I, I know everything what's going on in both of my kids' lives. So 
<clears throat> there was rumblings and you know we were talking about and we were talking about multifamily too we were talking about all kinds of things so there was a constant dialogue and so you know when the call finally comes it wasn't a complete shock and by that time I remember that I respected his decision-making process already that I think that he's got very very good decision-making abilities um, and I, I just kind of trusted you know the path that he thought he wanted to go down at that time you know and I was always just supportive whatever it was I, I tried to be supporting you know if he wanted to become a ballerina I'll be right there I'll be to every practice every performance right right so it wasn't too scary for you to hear that conversation or were you like well I guess he's gonna figure it out one way or another were you happy that he wanted to do it too were you proud of his initiative and wanting to kind of start his own business and create his own legacy in that regard or were you slightly apprehensive but I guess here goes nothing it's his choice as far as the multifamily yeah or just starting the own business and dropping out and I guess you know doing you know, being becoming entrepreneurial well the dropping out part never you know no parent wants their kid to drop out you know you feel bad like what, maybe what did I do wrong or something but you know that wasn't the case there he just didn't really think that the path that he was on with school was going to be most conducive to getting him to where he wanted to be he and he had found another path he was poking at this poking at that during college and he finally had a path that he wanted to go down and you know I think whatever path he was going to go down I was going to be there supporting him 150 percent and it probably would work out okay you know because two heads is better than one and and I would be helping him guiding him you know as best I could um, so it wasn't it wasn't that traumatic for me I you know I was okay with it um, didn't like it but he was already at that age he was very determined confident in his decisions and he had a great track record of just making good decisions all his life so it really wasn't uh, yeah I was okay very cool very cool so you have your own journey as well in the multifamily world obviously outside of doing the mastermind and whatnot but you mentioned before you know the thought of and Rob's convincing of potentially selling the most important the trophy asset the asset the Atherton house and maybe you know flipping that into some equity so yeah well let me just say I mean when I started crunching numbers and understanding the situation and you know what's actually also interesting is my parents were open with their financial situation with their kids so I know a lot of parents don't I had no idea ever what was going on in that regard zero zip yeah same none. with me my dad yeah, yeah so we knew what was going and, on we for the record I still have no idea <laughs> how much my dad makes whatever his net worth is, and one of our friends will go nameless, you know who this can be. It's like, you, you ever ask like, how much your dad manages at Morgan Stanley? Do you ever ask like, you know, what he makes a year, or like what you're gonna get? I'm like, no. I don't know how you don't ask. I don't, I, I just don't, it's, is, is that weird that I don't ask? I think it's very weird. Yeah. I, cause I just, I have to That's know. That's the McGrother way, you just, you just, you don't ask, you don't talk about it. I have to know. I, I, cr I need to crunch the numbers, I need to know, I need to, <laughs> I need to analyze the situation. So, our family was open with money, and open with the struggles, open with the wins. And I was crunching the numbers and I was looking at the situation, understanding how much money my parents made and understanding how much equity was accruing over the last yeah. 20 years into the house. And I was thinking, well, okay, on paper, there's a lot of equity in this house. They make a certain amount of money. If they stop working, that income stream goes away. And so I'm doing the math, I think, well, how, how are you gonna retire? 
he was complaining all the time about working too much. He wants to retire. He says, I've been doing, I started doing dishes at 14. I've been working since I was 14. I don't want to work anymore. Okay, well, what are we going to do? So I, I'm just crunching the numbers and it didn't make sense to me. And so being a stubborn kid and not being thoughtful or really empathetic with other people's emotions, I'm just banging the table on my parents and saying, sell your house and buy multifamily with the equity. The cash flow from the multifamily is going to pay for your retirement. It's going to supplant your income. How old is this when you're doing your financial uh, analysts and modeling of this, Mr. Uh, CFP over here? Uh, and then also, yeah, how long were you doing that for and what age did that all kind of occur? So I think I started uh, going on about that rhetoric at 20 and then I think you guys 2021 20, I think it was before 19 because think about it right you were still you know you weren't away at college when we first started listening to podcasts and stuff and when did you first go into rich dad poor dad and oh, really young that's what I mean so it it was back then because that's when you all of a sudden started saying well it, your house is a liability, not an asset. And he, he and I he would had have the biggest problem with that. <laughs> he had the biggest problem. He thought Robert Kiyosaki is a marketer. This is a scam. An a, a house is not a liability. It's an asset. <laughs> and we Anything would go. It doesn't pay you. Is a liability in his world. We so would go back. We would have arguments you, for years about that. Did you kind of encourage him to read certain books, or, or were you just always lucky that you weren't? Uh, frankly, a nerd and reading basically fiction books, but you read nonfiction and financial books. Because what if you just read like, oh, Lord of the Rings and J.R. Tolkien and uh, Game of Thrones, but you actually read stuff that was actually going to help you in your life. So did you point them in the right direction for that? Or did you just find these avenues yourself? Well, at some age, I, I forced him to listen. I had an MP3 collection, so I'd force him to listen to things like Think and Grow Rich, um, all kinds of stuff. I had tons and tons of Jim Rohn. Yeah, you, you were into self-help type stuff. Yes. Seven Habits. And so he had a spreadsheet, and he would have to ch check it off that he listened to uh, so many minutes each week. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think that's the genesis of consuming material because that's when it started. Yeah, it was self-help stuff. Uh, yeah. So going back to the crunching of the numbers, right? I'm pounding the table. This doesn't make sense to me. You guys have a, all this equity in the house. What are you going to do to retire? And the, all this pounding on the table is making my mom cry, right? Because here she is. Because you're right? Her ego is attached to living in this house. This is the house that we grew up in. This is her home, right? It's not just an asset. It's a home. It's where they live. It's the neighborhood, the community. And also the pride and the ego associated with owning a home in Atherton and being a homeowner versus being a renter. Also, much like my parents, they bought the uh, probate house for like 500K in 1991. That was, someone died in the house basically. It was terrible, total project as well. Mm -hmm. But to your point and to their point, they pride ownership because they did everything in the house. They've done two remodels to the house. Similar to your mom's point and to you, yeah, you have a lot more emotional attachment when you are legitimately if you could be shoestringing at one point, putting everything, everything together, putting your own love and detailing into it, that's not just, hey, I bought a spec house in Atherton that's just another house. That's No, that's your house and you took pride in that. So it's a different mentality if you do that as well. Well, it also felt like, I don't know if you shared the sentiment, but it felt like, I think for her, that if to sell the house meant to fail. 
It meant giving up on the dream. Yeah, we, we on that dream. We had originally planned to, you know, build a ten thousand foot house there. And that was the plan. We were gonna, you know, I was just gonna do it. Come hell or high water, that's what I was gonna do. And uh, you know, I still to this day feel like I failed because I really, really wanted a ten thousand foot house in Atherton. That sounds like a nightmare to me. Yeah. It's well, just so opposite because you are Mr. Minimalism, Mr. No Clutter, Mr. Simplify My Life, never own anything directly, but always put my money into Lone Star or various other funds. And I don't want to deal with it. I just want to see the checks come in and streamline my life. So it's so funny, the difference. And then Mr. When I Pack, you know, the lightest packer I've ever seen. Yes. Everything goes with everything. So, uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's packing. We, we should have an episode about packing at some that, point. Yeah, yeah. That's a good topic. Yeah. So anyway, so I think slowly we broke down the barrier and we were able to actually meet some common ground and have a conversation uh, about this seriously. An unemotional, logical one. Right. Because before that, yeah, it was tough. Right. Tough. Yeah. So, I mean, we can obviously fast forward to the point where you actually did list the home for sale and at nearly the top of the market. So. You know, luck is on your side again. Amazing, bought at the bottom, selling at the top, and then you rolled most of the equity from that sale into uh, essentially 300 multifamily units in Texas, and that was now your new challenge, your new job. But now also, ten thousand square foot house. Yeah, yeah, there it goes, right? Yeah. And then that, Just but that was also area. your your setup for generating a retirement income stream, right? So you could finally uh, realize your dream of not working. Yes, absolutely. All true, true, true. And, you know, I remember one of the things, um, you know, this was basically the vast majority of the money that we had was in the house. And, you know, when it came time to actually sell and when I was able to convince Ina to sell, because of it due to his prodding and well not just prodding but there's logic it wasn't yeah. like oh you, we're, i'm just going to convince you no there's numbers behind it and i understood the numbers i always liked apartments i loved it but he figured out how to do the equity how to do the debt and he convinced me and i convinced my wife and when i was going to sell the home i was promising her looking her in the eye saying i promise i won't lose our home money i promise you i won't and I didn't. I put it in Texarkana, and I've tripled it at least, you know, as opposed to losing it. So uh, for that, I'm grateful to him because he's. I came into multifamily kicking and screaming and, you know, fighting for years and arguing about the home because I was anchored to the home idea as well as Ina. Both of us were. And it's funny, as a former realtor like you are, we all think, oh, yeah, the home, the home, it's so important. But you realize, actually... As I learned, it's kind of a trap. It's not easy. There's zero economies of scale. One miscellaneous thing comes up, and you're over your budget and over your numbers, as opposed to the multifamily world. It's substantially more scalable, and you know, it's there's a lot more meat on the bone and value to add in that respect, which is the really unique thing about the business that we're in now and the business that you've got yourself into as you're retirement job yes yeah exactly it's retirement entirely passive right 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 well you could 1031 exchange just like all of you back home could into a lone star capital deal should you have a million dollars or more uh of equity to switch transfer in uh just for the record uh not dst but tick structure please uh with that said very interesting that you went down that route and transitioned so very cool 
Well, let's, let's, let's unpack it a little bit more yeah. because it's not so easy to triple your money. No. Right? No. And wait, what wait, it was and, to and wait, It's not easy to triple your money? No, it's not. Ah, triple, yeah. triple your money. And, right? and, and also not over a 40-year span like the S&P Correct. 500 would, but in a condensed... Four years. As Hunter Thompson says, no one cares who made a million dollars in 10 years. The guy that makes a million dollars in a year is interesting because it's all about speed. So speed of it is the X factor, of course. Right. So you took your construction background, your tolerance for risk, and we wrapped it up into a major value add program where we bought this property, you know, as a family that had 200 down units basically. And we had all these renovations to do, all this risk, all this crime that basically you and you know, you and your wife took on their, their shoulders and mostly ma. So that was a transformative thing for our family and I feel like she got to be the boss that she had inside of her all along yes because now she's an incredible manager of, of, of these properties of the team on site so but that was a stressful time for our family because now we jumped into the deep end and deep end deep end right so what what do you want to share about that experience and also let me ask at any point we're like part of my friend what the did I get myself into? Like, we were like, <gasps> did I really just freaking do this? Or were you confident or just no looking back, zero rear view, blinders on, like a horse at Del Mar, only looking forward? Del Mar, yeah. Um, no, and I'll tell you why. You would think most people would have these misgivings, but when we closed escrow, you know, there was a huge CapEx budget, and these, you all the units almost were down. It was just in terrible condition, and it was half empty. And of the 50% occupancy, I don't remember what percent wasn't paying. Um, so it really was. It was an amazingly run-down place. They had been cannibalizing other apartments for years to keep the other ones going because there was no money going into it. But all of our, almost all of our money was going into this property. So we loaded up our minivan with everything we could possibly fit. It was so heavy, and we drove out to Texas. The Beverly Hillbillies, you know, and the Atherton Hillbillies. But, yeah, but, but the other way, because most migration is from, you know, middle to west, chasing the California dream, you were chasing the, the Texas Texan dream. You are chasing yield. Yeah, exactly. Chasing yield, yes. Stabilized yield on cost. So <laughs> basically we moved in more or less for the first 14 months because there's such a huge capex budget I couldn't just give it to somebody I just there's no way I could it was my hard-earned money and so I felt if I, if I'm gonna oversee this I'm not gonna oversee it from California I have to be right there so basically we we remodeled a three-bedroom apartment for us and it looks right down at the office and uh, my desk is right there and I very very hands-on still very very hands-on but I didn't, I wasn't fearful because I knew what it was. I knew the surrounding occupancy was well into the 90s and this property was just grossly mismanaged. And so those 200 units could be readily filled. I was very, very confident that we could get that property up to, uh, up to speed. So I, I really didn't have those, it was tough, it was difficult dealing with, I mean, it's a small town Texas uh, and the labor pool is very shallow. 
and the people we were hiring were just at the bottom end of that shallow pond. You know, it was just very, very difficult. We and did plenty of aluminum remediation ourselves. Yes, we I were was out going there. around with the the yes. special screwdriver. We were on the roof. Yep. What were we doing on the roof? Well, the, the, the tree branch, one of the tree branches was actually grown into the roof. And it was, <laughs> you know, so we were up there, he and I with a chainsaw. And I'm it sure was, the agency lenders really love that, I bet. Oh. Well, they should. Yeah. They're very hands-on borrowers. I was up yeah. there with a chainsaw. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we were. So he, he can do little manual labor. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that makes one of us, because I can't. Yeah. No, it was it was a heck of a journey, and it still is a journey, and we've uh, we still got you know a ways to go, but we're I think at ninety one percent across three hundred units, and um, you know I, at one point we were in the low forties of occupancy because when we took over we had to kick people out because they weren't paying, and the, the prior management wasn't kicking these people out, and so here's these people not paying, not respecting the property. We're like. Were they like doing drugs there? Were they? Oh no! Was no, it gang banging? Nobody would or, do any of that. Right, right, right. Not under your roofs, of course. Oh, there was, you know, in Atherton or in Texarkana. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was. It was. It was. A, it was an interesting journey, um, but I don't regret it because it got me out of single-family homes, which I never enjoyed. Like I said, n nobody goes to college thinking, "Oh, I'm going to sell homes." No, nobody does that. <laughs> well, maybe somebody does. Yeah, maybe um, one person in this room. Yeah. And so. When my day came and Ina said, I asked again and again, and one day she said, yes, you can turn off your website. And I was, thank you. And that was it, no more, no more home Unbelievable. Sales. Yeah, and I was just so grateful, so happy. Um, and, you know, never look back after that. I'm just, I, people have reached out to me and I'm like, nope, I'm not doing any transactions. I don't want any part of it. Outside of Dasha and Rob, would you say that turnaround is the thing you're most proud of in your life and accomplishing that and setting you and your family up and your retirement up? Because now you live, I would say, you know, more large than not. You know, you do have amazing travel now. You kind of get to live life on your terms. Would you say that is, as I said, outside of your kids, the most thing you're most proud of? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, you know, I'm a very humble guy, so I don't really, I'm not proud of many things. What else do you have for us before you take us home? Because yeah, we, we do have to depart for a very swanky dinner tonight at a very exclusive and fun uh, cigar lounge or restaurant. I don't necessarily know the setup of it, but all I know is I come here and Rob says, hey, we're going to here, here, and here for dinner, and I just show up with a good attitude. So with that said, we've got to wrap up soon, but you have a couple fun little ho hobbies. One of them is credit card hacking. How'd you get into that? Him, he introduced me to credit cards um, shortly before I retired. And once I stopped doing selling homes, I needed something else to really dive into because I'm a very just I go after something and I don't give up, you know. And I think he's got it too. And it's like a dog with a bone. And he gave me a little glimpse. And I grew up not having money, and so all of a sudden I understood that. I could now, I could afford to travel first class and business class and stay at incredible hotels. And there's a path to that, you know. Um, and that's kind of the genesis of it, wanting to travel high class, uh, just to do, and to go everywhere. And now that I was retired, I, I well, wasn't- You never got to travel before. I, never, I, was tethered, I was tethered to football 
or I was tethered to work. And those were, those were my tethers. And yeah, I just, yeah. you know, uh, as a real estate agent, it's very, very difficult. You know, you go on vacation and you miss a deal, right? So there's a big commission that you're going to miss out on because somebody said, oh, I want to buy that house and you're not around to do it. Well, if you want to get busy as a real estate agent, you know, all you have to do is go out of town. So, yes. yeah, that's all you have to do is just go on vacation and your phone magically starts to ring. It's mm -hmm. funny how it works. Yeah, it's the way the world so goes. So what three credit cards would you get or would you have if you were to basically, if no one had a credit card or if someone's looking to reshuffle their deck, but don't cancel your first one because it's bad for your line of credit. So I understand you would know best. But what would you have to create a perfect three card stack? Well, you have to have a card that's going to be two points on everything. And that's, I think, the the biggest thing where people uh, fail or, or don't pay attention and that they put their credit card spend, their organic spend on a one point card. And so, you know, there's a few cards that are no annual fee, which is the Citibank double cash card and the American Express uh, blue business card. Um, those the are both- The platinum looks so cool. The platinum looks great. And you know, I've got a few of them. And <laughs> <laughs> the card that I have in my wallet is the Citibank no annual fee double cash card it's two go. points and everything and that's where I put my spend um, but we do as a family we have I think you know 60 cards probably which is terrible to say I remember when you came to visit in Arizona this is earlier on and you had your little like a lot of people have CDs back in the day if you have a little book like that and this guy had his little book of all these credit cards I'm like what is this because my parents are not that way at all my parents are not as uh, own orthodox in their methods of you know creating wealth there my dad's a financial advisor you put this in stocks bonds cds whatever so you know maybe a couple credit cards that's it but it's so cool that you you know guys hack it and are outside the box thinkers in that regard which is cool finally we didn't get a chance to get into this at some point but i think the next time we have you on we're going to go through something that's special and really unpack the blog that you have, which is called oh, Nectar Blog, if I'm not mistaken. No. So that would be something no. we get into at some point. But thank you so much for listening to episode 20 with the special guest, Todd. Thank you so much for being on the show. Wonderful. Yeah, exactly. And for the record, he has been so helpful for me. I don't think anyone uh, comments and listens to more thoroughly and fully to every single thing that we say than him. So thank you so much for being such a cheerleader for us for being supportive for just being there Apparent. i very much so appreciated our relationship that we have so far and can kind of continuing that uh moving forward it's so fun to get to see you get to know you better spend time looking forward to having dinner tonight with you and of course you once again episode 20 thank you for listening peace